Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is Mike Campbell. Uh, I'm going to tell you who he he is, but I want you to know first that when I first started this podcast 2013 and I made my initial list of 20 people that I wanted on this show, Mike Campbell was on that list. Uh, And because, Mike, you are the perfect person for what this this show is about. the choices you made in your life, the, the band you were a part of, your role in, in that band. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Mike was Tom Petty's creative partner for Tom's entire career and, and, and Mike's career until Tom's untimely passing. And when I say creative partner, he wasn't just the guitar player in the band or the sort of de facto musical director. Um, Mike wrote some of the some of your favorite and my favorite Tom Petty songs with Tom. Uh, he wrote, You Got Lucky and You Wrecked Me and Stop Dragging My Heart Around for Stevie and Refugee and Running Down a Dream. And he also wrote uh, two of my favorite songs uh, that aren't Tom Petty songs, Boys of Summer and Heart of the Matter and, um, and many more. And has just uh, is just about to release an album that has also been a really long time in the making. Uh, the Dirty Knobs, which is his band, and um, I want to talk to you, Mike, about that famous conversation you and Tom had about making a record like this a long time ago. And when I heard the album, I understood it even more than when I read about it in Warren's great book. So uh, the album's amazing, though. And people who listen to this podcast know I don't bullshit around about this stuff. I'm, uh, you know, I'm on there on Twitter talking about it. The album, you know, it's your own thing, Mike, and it's got its, its, its own thing. But I just want to say if people miss the thing that they loved about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, that is available for them in, in this album in terms of the grooves, the, the playing, the melodic stuff that, that you do. It, it just has brought a tremendous smile to my face to listen to this record as I've been writing the last few days. So, uh, Mike Campbell, welcome to the moment. Well, thank you. Those are very kind words, and I agree with every single one of them. <laughs> That's perfect, man. <laughs> no, I mean, dude, I got to start out by thanking you because I've listened to more TP and the Heartbreakers over this pandemic than maybe at any other time in my life. Like I was, I, I started really ride, taking long bike rides during this thing. And, and I was basically just like listening to you guys. And it led me to a question, which is, what does it feel like to you to, to know, does it, does it, do you still, do you let it in? Do you let it in the, um, the impact that the work you've done has made on people, how much joy it brings them? And like how, how much it informs their lives and, and what does it mean to you in return? Uh, well, yes, I don't uh, dwell on it, but I'm well aware because people tell me all the time, you know, that they'll say stuff like, your music has been the soundtrack of my life, you know. And I always go, mine too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it's, the, it's the ultimate compliment, you know. And as, as a musician, all you, your goal really is, aside from enjoying yourself, is to inspire somebody. And I've gotten a lot of feedback over the years that uh, I think that the Heartbreakers did, a, and Tom, did a good job of that, and I'm real proud of the music. I think hopefully it'll continue to inspire people long after I'm gone. Well, yeah, it will because it's doing it long after, you know, Tom. Uh, I would point out right now we're speaking on Tom's birthday. So oh well, happy a birthday! Emotional day, just so anyone knows, you know. Yeah, I mean, how ever present is he still in in your life? Uh, do you still? Oh, it's huge! It's huge! I mean, he is. He left a hole as a friend and a compatriot. And, um, you know, I have to move on and move forward. And, and there's some freedom in that, too, of, of letting go of the past. But my, I miss my friend. 
you know, a lot that I wish I could just call up and say, hey, man, how you doing? We used to have the greatest conversations and we were so close and we just, it's like we all, from the day one when we met, we just we agreed on all the same kind of music that we thought was cool. And we had that bond and we had a, the same dream to carry that, that energy forward in our lives. And so we did it together. And uh, it is his birthday today and I'm missing him. But, you know, I'm okay. Yeah, I, I was, I, I can't only imagine, well, I don't know if you, you know, but like my creative partner who I make all the movies with and make my TV show with, he's been my best friend since we were 16 also. Hmm. And so I have a full, you know, I mean, what you guys did is just on such a great scale and has like, you're, you know, I'm not comparing us in terms of our output, but I am in that, in that the guy I make stuff with has been my best friend since we were teenagers and decided we too had this dream in a way. And yeah. so I relate to that part of it really heavy. Um, and I, I can't imagine what it, what it feels like to you to, you know, I, I read that you were hesitant about uh, playing free falling when you went out with Fleetwood Mac. I was going to ask this later, but as you bring up Tom in this way, and I know you said it was because you played it a lot of time, but I was also wondering if it, if it just can sort of pulled you back into this thing that you were trying to move forward from. Well, I'm not consciously trying to move forward per se. I'm just trying to be realistic. Uh, the Fleetwood Mac uh, project was a wonderful experience. And I remember when I first sat down with everybody and they were putting the set list together and Stevie goes, I want to do free falling. And he goes, oh no, I'm so tired <laughs> of those three chords. <laughs> That's funny. And she goes, no, I think in the show it'll be, you know, she said, I have an idea to put a little film tribute to him at the end of the show. And, you know, she was right. And uh, people loved it. And every night we do that song and I would just, uh, I would really feel his presence. So I'm glad she talked me into it. Yeah, there's the people find the YouTube clip of the first night you guys were playing it on tour. You can see this moment where you kind of look at her and it's in your eyes like, yep, we should, it was good that we we're doing this. I, you can see all that going on in your face. It's pretty cool. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you don't watch videos of yourself, but I, I, you know, I did a deep dive in the last couple of weeks, so, uh, I went and watched it. So, uh, I want to start with this moment in, in, in your life, this one we're in now, what does it feel like to you, Mike, to have your own record coming out and it all being about you, like your point of view unfiltered and, and is it an emotional thing for you or is it, or is making the music, the emotional thing and the release? Like how does, I have to think that it. You know, you're, you're a guy in your 60s and you've been doing this for such a long 70. time. I, I, yeah, I didn't want to say it. Great. A guy I'm 70 proud, years I'm old. I'm proud of it. So don't, don't, don't. Yeah. <laughs> but 70 years old and your first record yeah. that's yours coming out. And I, I have to know, what is it? What does the whole thing feel like to you, man? Well, first of all, I don't feel 70. I feel about, you know, 40 or 50 physically. So that's a, a nice surprise for me. Yeah. And I am, uh, I'm really, I really feel like it's my time to do something that I want to do without someone else having to weigh in on whether they should do it. I should do it this way or that way. You know, I had George help me produce it and pick the songs and stuff, but it's something that I'm ready for. And I think it's, it's, it's just sort of meant to be right now. And it's not like, um, I mean, the album that we just did, Reckless Abandon, has some old songs on it, about half of them or, you know, a couple of years old, but half of them or so are new songs that came up, you know, during the recording. And the recording didn't take that long. I mean, we've been together, you know, decades, but that's because we were working between Heartbreakers tours and stuff. 
but we're you know we're actually a, a real band that's played together a long time, and we have similar uh, empathy uh, and intuition like the Heartbreakers had when we play because of all those years together, and I've had all that time with them over the years playing clubs and stuff to get comfortable with like you said like being the guy, and yeah. you know and talking to the audience and feeling comfortable with that and confident, and I just feel like um, I mean I was. Uh, really ready to go before this pandemic happened and I'll be ready to go when it's over. And I, I just feel like um, it's been a long time coming, but it's still kind of fresh because we didn't really spend a lot of time recording it. It was done really fast, mostly live. And so it just feels very kinetic to me. And uh, I'm really proud of it. And I feel in a good place. And and you feel emotionally ready for all the sort of judgment of it and all the response to be focused on. Yes, you have a band and I know they're a real band, but you know, uh, in the past people could love your songs and actually not know that you wrote them, right? They could have thought only Tom yeah. wrote them. I mean, here it's pretty clear, clear. This is, this is Mike Campbell. And, and how are you processing that? Or are you not thinking about it? Well, I don't think about it too much, but it, it is, um, I feel confident, you know, and I feel like Tom would be proud of me. For one thing, and I just feel like um, I'm ready to do this. You know, I, I'm I can you know I'm an old I'm an old horse. I, I've I've had I've gotten bad reviews of the Heartbreakers before, and I've had critics you know pick on us and stuff. I'm used to all of that. I'm not intimidated by it at all. I'm pretty confident. I know what we can do, and I know what I'm capable yeah. of doing. And here's the thing too. I'll just throw this in. Um, what's cool about uh, this band, and it is it is my band, and the focus is on me because I write and sing the songs, but um, over the years, playing uh, when we started playing clubs and stuff and, and, and trying new songs out on the audience, uh, I love the challenge of walking into a room and knowing that I'm going to have to, you know, engage these people uh, mm. without playing a hit. You know, we're gonna I'm going to engage these people with the songs we have right now and in the playing we're doing right in this moment. And I can't just throw in Refugee or Here Comes right. the Girl to, to get a big crowd response. We're going to, I'm going to try to win them over, you know, the hard way. And I've gotten really used to that. And I'm very comfortable doing that now. So you're not going to play Heartbreaker songs when you go out? Well, no. I think that uh, I put a lot of thought into that, too. I think that people that come to see the Dirty Noms with me will probably like to hear one or two songs. You know, and we've got a couple that we can do that we kind of do. Some of them are close to the way they were written. Most of them are. Like, I think we do... Um, we can do you wreck me. We can do running down a dream. And I, I have a version of refugee that I like that uh, is not like the record. It's, it's, it's like in a, a waltz time, like in a, like a folk song, but tough yeah. and in a slightly lower key. And it kind of comes across like a, a really deep uh, blues folk song. And the words are very powerful that way. So I, I feel a responsibility. Anybody buys a ticket to come see, they probably want to hear a little bit of what they're familiar with. But, um, you know, just a song or two here and there. Well, yeah, I mean, I, and, you know, you could probably, you could throw in Boys of Summer, too, if you felt like it. If you could, <laughs> if you could sing that, you know, if you could sing that high. Uh, uh, you, you can't could throw, even sing that high anymore. <laughs> no, of course not. I went to see him. I went to see him with my daughter a couple of years ago, Henley. And, yeah, it was a couple of, uh, it was a couple of keys lower. Actually, uh, when, I, can, I, can, I have done an Instagram of that song in a lower key. And, and it, it, I'm actually comfortable. I could do it if I needed to. That's a good thought. Maybe I'll consider that. Yeah, you. It would be great to see you do that because it's not Tom. It's not a song you've played out that much in your life, or that people True, have seen man. you play that much. It's a great song and a very strong lyric. 
It's an yeah, that's an incredible song, which I, I want to ask you about that. I have a bunch of questions about that too, okay. right. which I'll get to. But um, but but do you, when you said you know that Tom would like it, did, did he? Do you feel? Do you wish that he would have been here to see this whole thing? Like he could have cut. Did he ever get to see you do your thing with your band? A couple of times. You know, Tom was not real enamored with me yeah. having, having another band. To be honest with you, he felt a little like, "Well, why are you doing that? You know, you've got me." <laughs> yeah. No. And I, I, I. Yes. Well. Well. You I, brought I it up, and you brought it up, and I. Well, I. I think that moment in the book. You know, Warren Zanes wrote this incredible book. I about, didn't read it, so I don't know what you're referring to. I know the uh, book, but I haven't read it. I. I love it. Uh, do you not read about yourself generally, Mike? No, I don't like to do that. And I, I, I don't know why I never read it. I probably will read it, but I just never felt motivated to pull out and read about, you know, that stuff. So I, uh, if there's something specific, you'll have to tell me exactly what you're talking Well, about. I'll tell you. I mean, he describes this moment that Tom calls you into his house or whatever, or studio, I guess, and you guys sit down after you'd given him the record and he heard it. And he, he looks at you and he says, uh, man, I don't want you to put this record out. Uh, you, you, you know, we sound alike and, uh, the songs are the same and it'll take away from us. And, and, and the way he describes it, you thought about it and you agreed. And I, I gotta say most, most creative people I know would not have ridden through, would not have been able to just accept that it's very Godfather and the best parts of the Godfather, meaning your, your loyalty to the Don was so strong that, um, my, that loyalty to my partner and my brother was stronger than my ambition to do my own thing. But let me make clear, at the time you're talking about, it was a different record. It was not this record. It was some other songs I had. And I thought it was funny after being together with Tom for so many years. I only started singing because I had all these pieces of music. <laughs> and he, right. he couldn't write to them. He didn't, you know, it was too many for him to. So I started doing it just to see what it might sound like with a singer on it. And the first time I ever played him something, he looked at it and he goes, uh, that sounds like me. <laughs> right. But I think since then, I've, I've made a conscious effort to try and filter out anything like that that's too obvious and, be, and find my own voice. So what he heard was really, it shouldn't have come out. Uh, I don't think it was good enough at that time. Aside from the fact that he, you know, we both, I, as he told me, in a way, I was kind of—I thought it was kind of endearing that he wanted to—he wanted to own me. You know, he wanted—he wanted to have me for him and not spread myself thin. You know, he wanted a hundred percent of my attention on what we were doing together. And I sort of thought that was kind of well. He must really, you know, feel strongly about this. That, so you know, I'm—I can easily give that to him because I do too. Yeah, but that's a—that's a very evolved. I mean, I think this is really useful for people because people constantly ask about collaboration and about like you know. I was watching last night. Um, I got an early look at the Spring, new Springsteen documentary, and it's the band back together making this album that they just made. And so it's all those guys, you know, the ones who are still alive. And and I look at Stevie and Bruce, and although Steve doesn't write the songs with Bruce, you know, it, that's the closest thing to a creative partner he, he has. And yeah. and of course, Steve made a different choice. He and I have talked about it. We're friendly, and and you know, Steve left the band to go make his own stuff. And yeah. He describes being on the airplane. I don't know if you've ever talked to him about it, Mike, but no. he describes this moment that he left and he gets on the plane and he said, we got to 30,000 feet and I started crying. And I was like, what the fuck did I just do? <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, so for you, you were in that moment able to say to yourself, I love this partnership and I'll put yeah. my own dream aside. Exactly. The, the punchline is I really did love working with Tom and I love being in the Heartbreakers. And I wouldn't do anything. It was nothing more important than that. You know, my ambition 
to do uh, my own songs was not nearly as strong as my ambition to keep the band together and keep our partnership together. And I respected him, you know, and I thought it was a good, he was, he was very honest about it. And I didn't feel bad at all about it. I thought, well, you know, he wants, he wants me to stick together with him. I can give him that, you know, and I'm happy to, because we do great stuff together and I'll get to the other stuff. You know, I've always figured someday the heartbreakers will retire or whatever. And it's not like, I'm not trying to set the world on fire with reckless abandon, you know, but I just want to put the songs out and have people enjoy them. I mean, I've already had, I've already, you know, set the world on fire. I don't expect to compete with that as, as, you know, any kind of musical success. I just want to have artistic um, satisfaction. And that can wait, that can wait, you know, that can wait for the heartbreakers to finish what they were doing. And I, I never really had a problem with it. Yeah, that's amazing to me and beautiful. I, I, I mean, you're the friendship you guys had and the creative well, partnership. And it, I mean, let me, let me just uh, expand. Yeah, please, Sorry please. To you, but that goes back to back in the day when we started out in Florida, it was all for one and one for all. You know, it wasn't Tom Petty and we were Mudcrutch or whatever. And then as we got out to L.A. and things fell apart and they restructured the deal and then it became, well, it's going to be Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And at that point, you know, I could have said, well, fuck you. It's, 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 it's five ways or nothing. But I never really felt that strongly about it. I always felt, well, that makes sense to me, you know, because he is the writer and he's, he's a great leader. And I'm fine to be in a supportive role in this band. And uh, so that's just where my ego sits with Tom. That We were always very uh, copacetic in that way. Were you able to be um, e equals with him other than in sort of certain kinds of decisions like that? Like we're... Because, you know, when the the way people talk about the band in that book and uh, when I watch documentaries, it does seem like you were the one person who tried to keep yourself uh, really like uh, uh, with him. So you whereas a lot of the other members of the band, it seems like at times would get very chippy, annoyed, frustrated. You it seems like you just sort of put yourself in a spot where you were going to be his consigliere and mm -hmm. help, help make this thing go and tell him the truth. Uh, in the well, best way. It was way organic, you, you know. It was it was a brother love we had. It was organic. It wasn't anything we thought about. It just it just felt comfortable. He loved me. I loved him. He respected me, and he respected me enough to write songs with me. Yes, as an equal, and he respected me enough at some point to go. You know what, Mike should get co-production because he's making yes. the decisions. That came from him. That wasn't me saying I want more production or whatever. He always just gave me because he wanted to keep me close. You know, he didn't want me to quote unquote yes. get away. And so he, he gave me that respect, and out of that came a lot of loyalty. When, when he spent that year kind of hanging out, living at Leon Russell's house, you know, going back and forth to Leon Russell's house yeah. or whatever, yeah. you were in L.A. then, right? And were, right. You, were you playing in a different band? Like, what, what did you imagine... What was your ambition at that moment? You guys came out, the deal got weird. He's uh -huh. like maybe going to do something with Leon Russell. He's there every day. What is your life like during that moment before the Heartbreakers really coalesced into this? Right. Well, thing? that's a good question. The truth is uh, the Mud Crutch thing fell apart because we didn't know what the hell were we doing, uh, Tom included. But Denny Cordell believed in, in Tom and to me uh, as a partnership as well, I believe. But at one point, I remember Shelter Records said, okay, this band has been disbanded. We're going to keep Tom on as an artist. And Mike, you can go to Tulsa and live at the, the church <laughs> while we figure right. it out. 
And I said, no, I'm not going. I'm in L.A. I'm not moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I, you know, I don't know. Somehow I just had a deep under uh, a faith underneath that that I could help him musically. And uh, so I just hung out. I didn't look for other work. I just kind of supported him, waited for some songs to come together. And we'd go in and record. He'd always call me like we're going to go in and record with Jim Gordon or, or Al Cooper or whoever. He always right. called me because he wanted me there. And so I never felt insecure about it. Like, well, fuck this guy. I'm going to go do my own thing. I just felt that I should stick with the plan because something good was going to happen. I just had a sense. Of it. How did you support yourself during that year? Well, the shelter gave me a meager uh, allowance enough to just, you know, and I had a girlfriend who's now my wife who had a job and we had a little right. apartment and she, she paid some of the bills and I got a little trickle from the company and, uh, you know, we struggled. Uh, but it was a romantic time, you know, I mean, it wasn't, we were happy just to survive. And I love your faith, man. It's very moving to me to hear this, like, uh, that you recognize something in this magic that the two of you had, like you recognize something in him, but more than that, you recognize this alchemy and you bet your whole life on it, right? Well, I guess so. Now that you put it that way, I didn't know any better. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. was, uh, and to be honest, let's, let's be, let's be very honest about this. Um, uh, Tom is a very confident leader. Okay, he was very confident in his talent. He presented himself with a with a lot of um, leadership and and power. And to be honest, at that age of my life, I was kind of insecure. I wasn't uh, right. confident. And he was a. I followed his lead, and it was a perfect marriage because I was there if he needed me, but I wasn't challenging him for the for you know for control of the of the band. And uh, as I've grown older, I've gotten more confidence and uh, I know that I, what I can do. But back then, I really I really was just not that confident that I was, you know, other, anything other than just a good. Oh, this is did you not know back then? Because, you know, they describe I've heard Tom describe many times, you know, the first time he saw you play, how in love with it he was and how he recognized in you how special you were. Did you not? I'm always interested in this about artists. Yeah. You know that 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 that, that, that some people like are delusional and that they think that they're incredibly great and they're just okay, right? And then other people, it goes the other way. Like, were you aware that you had a special series of gifts when you were twenty or twenty-one? Were you already writing riffs then? Did you? you Yeah, I'll tell you something about. That's a really really good question. Nobody's asked me that before. It's very personal, but I'll share this with you. Um, I like I said, I was kind of insecure. Why? I don't know. That would be a job for a therapist. Yeah, sure. But I knew I could play the guitar and I loved it so much. I was going to play it no matter what, but little things would happen along the way. It would put a little light in me. Like I remember once Mm -hmm. I had been over in Gainesville, I had been over to some friend's house, I think with Tom Ledden and some buddies of his, and they had a little bluegrass band or whatever. And we were jamming along. And I said, how about, I had this little boogie thing that I had written. I was making up songs from the day one. I was always just making up riffs and stuff. That's just what I love to do. And so I showed him this little three, uh, 12 bar little thing. And then, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, they said, oh, we're playing at this, uh, this bar at the college. Why don't you come watch us? And I'm sitting there and in the middle of the song, they go, here's a song Mike Campbell wrote. Wow. And they played my song and I was like, whoa. You know, I'm thinking, wow, maybe I'm good. Maybe I must be pretty good or they wouldn't have done my song. So things like that would happen, you know. Oh, that's awesome. Or I'll go back to the first, the first time that ever happened. And I don't know if you want to talk about all this, but I'll go. I do. Back. I really do. Everyone wants to hear this. Tell me. But, yes. uh, okay, I'm learning guitar and I'm learning off of records. And, you know, I've got my Beatles and my Stones and Mike Bloomfield, who I loved. Yeah. 
maybe, I don't know if Jimmy Hendrix was out, and Bob Dylan, a friend of mine from high school, wasn't very good, but he kind of turned me on to Bob Dylan, which I just loved. And of course, I love, I love Chuck Berry. Anyway, yeah. this friend of mine was a very social kind of guy, and, and this is in Jacksonville, Florida. He said, Let's go, I want to go over to this house of these guys I know. They have a band, and they all live in a hippie house, you know, like a commune, and they play bluegrass music. And I said, okay, so I went along. And these guys were older, you know, they had old ladies and long hair and they lived <laughs> yeah. in the house and they didn't have parents, you know, I was a, from the suburbs, really poor anyway. So anyway, we're sitting there and they, they jammed around a little bit. So my friend goes, Mike, um, show him a Chuck Berry. And I go, really? You know, I'm sitting over in the corner. So he handed me the guitar and I played Johnny B. Good or something. And I noticed these guys were older than me, 10 years older than me. And they all stopped and stared at me. And they were like, they were like, and I was just thinking, wow, they think I'm cool. Like maybe I'm, maybe I'm pretty good. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But that's, yeah. That's sort of been my way. Maybe that carried through into my later years. Like, well, maybe, maybe I don't suck after all because they like it or, uh, you know, these people. Well, that, that's a fascinating thing that like there's, that you, that you actually have that in your head as a memory of, um, of a moment where it didn't, it, it sort of stopped being your little personal thing that you just loved when you, and, and, well, and like, like my dad once told me when I was just beginning guitar, he said, son, if you learn to play that guitar, you'll always have friends. And I didn't know what he meant, but I totally mm. get it now because people are drawn to that and not to mention girls, uh, you know, like I said, I was very shy, but I noticed that when I played the guitar, the girls would come over and talk to me. <laughs> right. And so I thought, well, this, yeah. this is something that uh, works for me. <laughs> And, and well, yeah, that makes that all makes complete sense to me, just how much you, you loved it. And then you right. loved getting that that response. And I also wondered, um, Tom Ledden and his brother, uh, mm -hmm. uh, seeing them and Felder get work uh, and they were from your town. I, I've always wondered, did that make it all seem somehow possible? To yes, you guys? it did. Now, well, I'll carry on another story about Bernie Ledden. Yeah. A short thing on the same subject. He was off in L.A., had a record deal. He was starting the Eagles, and he would come to town, and we'd all, Tom and I would go over to his house and pick his brain. Now, what's it like out there? You know, how do you get do that? How do you do this? How do you get gigs? And and he was really nice to us. He said, "Well, you know, you just you just get get after it and make you know keep practicing." And then I remember one day uh, he came over to my house, and and Bernie was like a virtuoso banjo player, especially yeah. just a great musician. You know, just professional, really high quality musician. And I was sitting at my house one day and I had a little Japanese guitar plugged into my tape recorder speakers. And I was just playing, you know, kind of wailing with a fuzz, fuzzy sound. And he came, he came over and said, you know, you're really good at that. You know, like, oh, really? You know, so that, that, that's how it kind of happened for me is that the talent carried me along. And it took me a while for my ego to catch up. Right. That's very, I mean, in a way that's pretty healthy because you didn't stop. You know, some people, if they're so insecure, maybe they won't play in front of people, but at least. Oh, no, I wasn't going to stop. Even if people said I sucked, I loved it too much. Right. And so for you, did practicing feel like practicing or did it feel like this thing that you love to do, you know, just love? Well, I to never, do? I, I, I never thought of it. Well, yeah, I guess I like, you know, Tom Ledden, he taught right. me some bluegrass songs, which I, I was more, more into blues and rock and Beatles and stuff, but he yeah. taught me some factual Doc Watson stuff. And I would practice that just for the technique, the picking and all. But when I played on my own, typically I would play, you know, songs that, like the Beatles or Stones that I knew, or else I would play blues I was and Chuck Berry. And, but almost in, in, uh, instantly, I would start trying to make up my own thing. You know, I would start be playing a Stones. Yes. Song. Oh, those two chords are really cool. 
what can I do with those two chords? Maybe I'll play them backwards and I'll make up my own song. And, I'll also, and would you make up words and melodies too at that time no, or no? no? At the beginning, well, actually I did. At first, that song I showed to Tom, I, I had a, a little bit of a lyric. I don't remember what it was, but I said, oh, this is kind of like Roger McGuinn. I, I thought it was shitty. And he goes, oh, that's interesting. So he kind of gave me confidence. But no, I once I heard Tom's lyrics, I kind of shut that switch off in me. Like, I, I can't do that. He's he's way above me. Hey, I mean, he's one of the best. I mean, he's one of the best who ever lived at yeah. writing lyrics. So, yeah, that's yeah, right. You like, you know, don't waste time trying to write lyrics. Just play guitar with his lyrics. <laughs> right. Uh, later that's... on, like I said, when I got older and, and I had all this music, then I started trying to, to, to write my own words and stuff just because I wanted to hear what it sounded like. And he was he couldn't handle all the music. So I had to do it myself. So the, uh, one of the things yeah, that I, I, I want to know about this this time period is as you started you guys go make the first record, and I, I don't. Did, did you didn't? Did you write anything on the first record? Yes, "Rocking Around with You." Right. So, how did that come to be that you showed him uh, a song, and and he was like, "Okay, I'll I'll do it." Because I, you know, these Instagrams that you do, and I want to tell people go look at his. I mean, that Instagram about you wreck me is unbelievable, and I, I those Instagrams where you tell the stories are so compelling, Mike. I, I think it's like one of the best things on all it. A Twitter. So, well, I mean, in all the social media, it's one of the best things. Um, okay, let me turn this amp on for a second, and I'll show you how. Uh, sure. And the, the, the way we were doing the first record, and Denny Cordell, uh, and you know, Denny Cordell once came to to my I, I my my wife when we couldn't afford it, we needed the money for rent. She went and and bought helped me buy a TF4 track because she believed in me. Anyway. And I got that TAC 4 track and I would just start making up demos, you know, beating on cardboard boxes and overdubbing, you know, on the four tracks, just music. And I remember one day Denny Cordell came over to my house. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I played him this pretty shitty demo. I, mean, I don't even remember what it was, but it had something. And he looked at me, he said, if you, if you, um, if you uh, work that out a little more, you'll be a millionaire someday. Wow. I just thought this guy's out of his fucking mind, but he, he heard something. And he knew that guy. That guy knew because he, he was fucking brilliant. And, he was a great uh, producer, yeah. And, and more than a producer, he was like a visionary. Right. And so anyway, I was always just fiddling and making stuff up. And one day, I, I was in the studio on the first album, and I was just going, uh, uh, kind of like a guitar exercise and up to a... What's interesting about it is I had that much, but I didn't have a song. And then right. I went, and from that, I, I kind of went up to. And Tom heard it and he instinctively knew, well, we need to take that part out. That's that second part huh. came up with, but the first part, I can, I can get a song out of that. And that became rocking around with you. Um, so yeah. that's kind of how, and that was the beginning of, of our songwriting relationship is I would come up with something that maybe he wasn't capable of or wouldn't think of doing that was in, that he understood could be something good with the right lyric over it. And, and how would you decide which was like, like I, I got to talk about when you wrote, because one of the things when I started the podcast, it was like, I always wondered in the moments of creating something amazing, well, you know, when do you know or what do you know about it? And I've thought, because I've thought about in regards to my own work, you know, like a movie that, like, did I, when was I aware of it? And you know, a lot of time you work the whole time and it just is so hard and it sucks. And then suddenly, it, it, like, you finally finish. You're like, oh, this is a bad, you know. 
But like, what happened when you wrote that riff to Refugee? And did you write the whole back? Like, I know later on you wrote whole tracks that you would then play. But when you wrote that riff to Refugee and that chorus melody or whatever, you, however you wrote, yeah. did you know, like, holy fuck, I just did something amazing? Like, what what happened? Well, you know, writing is is such a mystical thing. And, yes. And sometimes you just, you just in the moment you're doing like play, playing that riff or whatever and and you're just toiling around trying to put two pieces together and sometimes a song will just reveal itself to you it's like magic really it really is um it's almost so mystical i hate to analyze it but refugee for instance um back in the day this is before drum machines that's how old i am right there was this record called drum drops and this record had drum tracks with no other instruments and whoever did it he would play, okay, here's a waltz, okay, here's a rock, here's a Latin. <laughs> yeah. He would play an arrangement, like, you know, he would play symbols where the chorus might be, blah, blah, blah. So there was this one track on there, and I had just uh, gotten my Les Paul gold top, and I wanted something to practice soloing. So I put that beat on, and I just wanted some, and I liked this key of F sharp minor. Because there was this, uh, Albert King, Albert King song called Oh Pretty Woman that was in that key. And I thought that'd be a... I need something that I can practice soloing over. So I just went... I started playing that along with the drum beat. And then, you know, I got a couple of changes. So I put that on the tape and I just played along with it, you know? Jesus Christ. So it was really an exercise for something to me to play. And then as I was working on it, I started to realize, well, this sounds like more than just, it, it could be more than an exercise. <laughs> it's just got a structure to it, you know, and somehow the, the turnaround chords came to me. So that whole music was, was uh, self-realized. And I played it for Tom. What did you play him? You, you what did you record then? Because did you put track. the so you put that drum drops thing? I want like you put the drum drops thing on down. One track in mono, and then a rhythm guitar, and then probably a lead guitar and a bass. You know, like a four piece demo. I wish I could. I wish I could find that. I'm, I'm looking for tapes now. I hope I can find that original. I bet you can find it. You must not have thrown that thing out. So then, wait, you present Tom with just that, or are there like seven songs on the tape you give him? Do you say like, I think time, I got some? Yeah, at that time I wasn't that prolific. I'm, I think I had that, maybe Here Comes My Girl and a couple of other things maybe that weren't very good. But Tom was so astute, you know, and, and he heard that and he just, he immediately wrote a song to it, you know, <laughs> made, which was such a, you know, such a thrill to have someone take your germ and turn it into something great. And that became, you know, our relationship. It was so exciting every time he'd write to one of my music I always felt so blessed. So that's the story of that song, you know, and it, I gave him the music, he wrote the words, and then Jimmy Iving came in and, and I had Here Comes My Girl as well, which kind of started the same way. I was just playing around with chords and put a, a little, and that was also, the music was self-realized. He didn't have to change any of the chords or bridge or anything. Right, you just you just locked the whole thing in. You'd, you'd written the, the whole thing. Yeah, it just, it just worked. When, when the band played Refugee yeah. and you had it and you heard it for the first time in this, did you know we just changed our whole, like, because you guys were getting huge, 
But refugee, Tam the Torpedoes, refugee took you to a, an well, entirely we're different huge. place. We're, we're kind of getting well known. I remember our our, yeah. our manager, uh, Elliot Roberts at the time. Yeah. He heard refugee and here comes my girl. And he said, okay, this is, this. is you're onto something now. We need to get a good producer. So we got Jimmy Iovine and he came in and heard a bunch of songs and he listened to him and he says, you know, refugee and here comes my girl. I don't care what else you do. <laughs> That's so Jimmy Iovine. That's awesome. We got those two songs. We got an album. And he was right. You know, he heard stuff and I'm just going, okay, great. And um, I remember once we were in the studio when we were, and it took forever to record it. And I'll get it. That's a whole other story. But we were in the studio and the, the assistant girl at the right. desk, she came in and she heard a, a nearly finished version of Refugee. And it ended. She looked at it and said, just watch that one run, boys. Just watch it run. And so it's like people seem to, to know that something was going to be a hit when I didn't. To me, it's just another song, you know. Oh, so wait, that's true. That okay, that's really fascinating. You mean true story. when you, Mike Campbell, heard heard it, all you thought was that's lovely. That Tom loves the song, and but but to you, you didn't recognize that hook, and that it had that strange thing that the biggest records have, you know. Because to me, no, I didn't anytime you put on Refugee, it just um, it's so obvious that it's that different, strange, once in a generation kind of record, you know. Well, you know, I was in the right place at the right time, and it was revealed to me from the air. I don't know why. I didn't think, I mean, I, I never think much about, and well, occasionally I'll, I'll do something, and I go, oh, Tom's going to love this, you know? And, right. And then he'll go, nah. Or I go, like, <laughs> oh, there's, there's a couple of other pieces of junk on there, and he'll go, oh, that one was really good. So I don't know that I was a good barometer of my own stuff. I, mean, I knew it was pretty good, but I didn't know it was going to become refugee, you know? And I'm yes. like, probably the most I ever thought of, this would be fun live because I get to play lead guitar on it. You know, that's probably as deep as I got. I was pretty, pretty green really back then. Right. And so that, that ties into, so for you getting him to sing a song that you wrote, put lyrics on it, doing it. I, I've often wondered this, you know, you're there, you, you write some of the biggest songs. Like you said, Here Comes My Girl and, and Refugee. I mean, those came out of your guitar and you arranged the tracks and the lead lines were already in there. The melodic mm -hmm. stuff was already in there. And, and, you know, Tom is so famous, he can't walk around and you could get any table you want. You're a famous person, but you weren't a household name and, and you could go places and not be recognized. Oh yeah. I'm glad I had that freedom. I didn't have, he had to live with that burden. I didn't have to live with that burden too much. It's not even a burden, but it was a burden yes. for him. No, you got real famous in the video <laughs> era, obviously, but we were, but back then you were, um, Just you were cool. <laughs> no, that's. But you were cool with that. That what I'm getting to is like the way oh, Stan yeah. Lynch is the way Stan is portrayed as being annoyed by the idea that it was Tom as the superstar and the rest of you were a backing band. You were cool with it. It didn't look, look, I never thought about any of that stuff. I love music. With me, it was always the music. You know, that's all I cared about. I don't care if anybody recognized me or even if it was it was nice when it was successful, but I just loved it anyway, you know. It made me happy inside. Right, that part just didn't that you never got into that game. This Not is important, really. people. No. All of us, so many people play that game of measuring themselves. And here you are next to a guy, you know, you're getting wealthy, but this guy's getting 10 times more wealth, all that stuff. And it didn't bother you. You were like, this is fine. I remember talking to Stan Lynch about that once when, yeah. we, when we restructured the deal. I said, look, Stan, calm down. There's rich and richer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're all going to do really good if we just keep our shit together. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. Right. 
And and you wrote this. I mean, the other thing, Stan didn't write the songs. You wrote the songs, so you had and you produced the records. Well, so yeah, you had that. I had the publishing, which was has been a really nice bonus for me. Yeah, that's another thing. But I'm saying you never got for you. You were able to see. God, you're a very evolved person, Mike, in a lot of ways. Because you were a lot of people and a lot of bands split up over like issues like um, enough. You know, you were somehow able to decide. Well, this piece is enough. Like I'm, it's enough for me, and it's fair. Even when other guys in the band were giving you shit about it or wanting to revolt or asking for more, it's kind of a very Buddhist place you got to, I think. I yeah, or just just um, intimidated. I don't know. It's, you know, <laughs> insecure probably. It's probably maybe a character flaw in some ways, but I think it worked out for me. And I also think that maybe the reason is when we started in Florida. You know, we started together with nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. Carry our own amps around, you know, setting up our microphones, doing it all in a van that we couldn't afford, you know, and we, we, we grew up that way. So that bond, that, you know, Boy Scouts thing, it never left for me. I'm on the team, you know, you want to play first base or second base. I'm on the team. You know? So, so, so then was it hard for you when, uh, when, when he, when, when, you know, you would create a piece of music that was great, like Boys of Summer, which was a whole track, right? Boys of Summer is a, you didn't just write sort of like a riff. You, you presented Tom with a track for Boys of Summer. Yes, right? I did. And, and you didn't have a title on it, right? Or you did? No, I never had titles. It was always just music. Now, and, in Tom's and, defense, in Tom's defense, I mean, I don't want to get technical, but I had the whole demo of Boys of Summer. I had done it on a drum machine that I had just gotten and all the chords, all the guitar bits. And Jimmy Iovine was there one day and Tom and I and him listened to it. And in Tom's defense, when I got to the chorus, I went to a different chord. It was kind of like a, a minor chord. Yes. As the song ended up on the chorus, it goes to that, that big major chord. You know, it lifts up. And so he heard a, a slightly inferior version. And I remember when it went by, they were kind of grooving to it, and it got to that chord, and Jimmy Ivey goes, oh, it sounds like jazz. And I felt completely deflated, you know, so they left. And I thought, you know what, I think he's right. I'm just going to drop in some some different chords there. <sighs> no way! Really? I, I changed the chorus chords just to suit myself, because I thought, you know, he's right. In the meantime, he called me and said, you know that track that Tom didn't want to do Don Henley's looking for some music so I went over to his house and played him the song but then with the new chorus and it was just the chorus and it was that was the way that came about and wait, later you went on, over to Jimmy's house or to, wait did you go to Jimmy's house or Don's house Who's Don house? Henley's house it was just me and him and we sat at a big table he sat at the other end like the judge totally quiet and totally you know didn't bat an eye just listened with his eyes closed and then uh, he said, okay, I, I, maybe I can do something with that. I never met him before, so I didn't know. Wait, you, this is amazing. Hold on. Don Henley is so fucking scary, dude. So you're, I mean, you know, <laughs> especially to someone like who's, you know, because that guy's a true intellectual giant and everything. And he was Don Henley There's and doesn't, su but yeah, I doesn't I suffer. Mind. Fools. I figured if he doesn't do it, then, uh, you know, maybe Tom will do it or I'll do so. I wasn't uptight about it. But it was just kind of like, wow, he's so serious, you know. And he's like, I don't know if he likes it or not because he didn't. <laughs> Well, or anything but I, then then i got the phone call when i got home it's like oh i just wrote the best song of my life to your music I go, really okay well i'd like to hear that you know, like <laughs> oh that's wait because i had heard this story from andy slater told me that henley was driving andy slater told me this like 20 years ago the way i remember it right that don went driving on the on the pch i guess and yeah, like yeah uh with your cassette 
and then just started singing in the car and I guess called Slater and sang it to him and said the same thing. I just wrote, so wait, he calls you and did he sing it to you or what happened? I don't remember if he sang it to me. I think I, uh, I think he said, uh, let's, let's do it. And we went to the studio and started working on it and he showed it to me then, you know, and I thought it was amazing. Did, uh, did you have that opening guitar riff right on the demo? All the guitar riffs. In fact, the hardest part of that record, it was, he won't raise the key. Yeah. I had all the bits and I had to recreate. And, and we used to do this with the Heartbreakers too, with the same thing with Refugee and Here Comes My Girl. These demos were pretty good and we'd have to recreate them. And sometimes you can't. It's just so hard to, to recreate a moment. So with Boys of Summer, we struggled. I had to go back and relearn all the little bits that I did off the top of my head on my demo and do them exactly the way they were in the new key. And it took some real gumption. <laughs> but um, what's interesting about that, the only thing I didn't have was da 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 at the end. Right. So when I was redoing it, I came up with that idea. Oh, that's amazing. While and you were redoing so, it, you came up with that incredible hook. It, that's amazing. Yeah, also because we had to, we were, you know, mother, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So by being forced to to do it, I got to the end and I thought, well, I'll put, put something else on the end. So that piece, that piece came. So, so when you changed the, crazy. when you changed the core, the chorus, uh, uh, the chords that led into the chorus, you didn't go then play the track again for, for time. No, I did not. At that point, I figured he's probably fed up with it. And I had so many other songs and I knew he was working on other songs and, and, and Jimmy asked me for a favor, would you, you know, get, you know, would you, and I thought, well, there's that track. He said, okay, we'll give him that one. So no, I never, but now I was going to tell you, flash forward years later, uh, Tom and I are in the studio and we're mixing, uh, don't come around here no more. Yeah. And we go out to the car to listen to the mix, like on a cassette, like we used to do back in the day. And the two of us, and we sit in the car, I turn on the radio, and there's Boys of Summer. Hmm. And I go, oh, so I change the channel. There it is again. <laughs> before, I can, before I can even turn the cassette on. So I turned it down, and he looked at me, and he goes, boy, you know, you were really lucky with that. And I go, yeah. And he goes, he said, I wish I would have had the presence of mind and not let that one get away. That was a real brother moment. Well, amazing too, because the song, you know, Henley took it. You wrote this sort of cinematic thing, but but Tom would have done something else with it. You know what I mean? It became this cinematic yeah, knows, thing knows. because it it fits into the the Eagles kind of Michael Mann worldview of LA. It, it became a totally different thing, right? Than it would have been if Tom yeah, um, had written it. I don't know it. what Tom would have written to it. I will never know, but I'm sure it would have been something good and completely different. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been. I'm sure it would have been great. And had it heart of the matter. So, but but was that the first huge cut you got that was someone other than Tom? Yeah, that was out of the blue. It's like, and, you know, I tell you what, between you and me, it saved my ass. Why? At the time, I was in. I had bought a house that I really couldn't afford, and I was like praying for a tour to come up quick because I was kind of. And that song came through and just saved my life. So I have a great fondness for Don for doing that, and he yeah, had, and then. He had no yeah. idea what I was going through, but that song really just came at the right time. I was, it was, you know, it was a miracle. And, and yeah, I'm sure then that changed your life for a long time too, because it was so, such a, my life. Yeah. right. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. It's one of those things that's forever. And, and how did heart of the matter come to be then? Cause right at the same time, right? Yeah. Well, heart of the matter was his next record. Heart of the matter. I'd actually been working with Jeff at that time. So I had a lot of Jeff Lynn, uh, mannerisms in my writing 
But anyway, I just got up one morning and just went. Why? I don't know. It just I wasn't even awake yet, but I remembered it. And so I put a track together with those chords in a kind of a Jeff Lynn uh, production approach and gave it to, to, I don't think I ever even showed that one to Tom. I just gave it to, because there were so many other songs. I think I just gave it to Don. And there you go. And and he and had you given anything to Don that he didn't take, or, or were oh, those yeah, the only? Yeah, yeah. Well, I gave him another song uh, that he wrote to uh, "People Can Change." I remember it was the title. I thought it was really good, and he just never finished it. And a few other things that he didn't like. I mean, you know. So I don't know. Is it those two were just they were miracles. I don't know why they happened, but they did. When, uh, hey man, when you guys first made it, I meant to ask you this before we were talking about Bernie Ledden and, and Felder. Did those guys, uh, did those guys come back around and sort of say to you like, "Good job" and stuff? Like, did they? Did you guys stay connected through your? No, no, I, I, I was never really friends with either one of them. I mean, we would see Bernie occasionally in Florida when he'd come back for a vacation or whatever, but we weren't in touch. I don't even know. If, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with Don Felder ever. Even though you were from the same town, right? I mean, he was. Well, he was ahead. He was older than me. He was already had gone by the time I got to Gainesville. And 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 when you had those records that hit "Heart of the Matter" and "Boys of Summer" for Don, and it was you know you were producing with Tom Petty, you were making these tracks, which so it's not just like what a songwriter now it's what songwriters do. But back when you were doing it, Mike, that is not what most songwriters did. You know, I mean, I I grew up around this stuff. My dad was making yeah. records then, and I would watch. And you know, that's just not the way most songwriters d- did it. And so uh, it occurred to me that in that moment, you could have kind of become like a Mutt Lang of L.A. kind of guy. Like it was obviously, I remember, like you were getting offered tons of shit to produce. Well, you just, work. you know, you follow the technology. Like when I did uh, Refugee, I had a four track and that was right. a big deal, you know. And then when I did uh, Boys of Summer, I had the Lind drum and I was playing around with that and came up with the, that. and when I did... Uh, Part of the matter, I was into Jeff Lynn, so I, I just had a real, I didn't have a complicated drum beat, just a s- stupid straight right. beat like he would do. So, you know, as the technology, as a creative writer, as technology becomes available to you, you start playing with it and come up with things, you know. Did, did you ever uh, uh, consider, though, because like I'm saying, you were able to build tracks, did, did you ever consider producing a bunch of bands? Because you must have been offered that opportunity all the time. Well, back you know, then, I was so. always too busy and I love my band. I, 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 I thought about that and yeah. also thought about, well, maybe someday I could do movie soundtracks or something. It was just a fleeting yeah. thought. But then I'd come back to it like, you know, I don't really want to do that because then you're answering to somebody else. I'm used to being in my own band and doing my own songs. You know, and I don't really want to be a for hire producer because I'm busy and I've got a great gig and I'm not going to leave that alone to go do this other stuff. So the heartbreakers were giving you enough of so that you didn't have. We worked our butts off. You know, we were always touring or recording or writing. And so, you know, and to be honest with you, I didn't get a whole lot of offers to produce anybody. Occasionally something would come in. I have to go, well, uh, I'm sorry. You know, the one that one thing that came in one day was George Harrison calling me. And uh, he was going on tour to Japan and he had Eric Clapton in his band. And he asked, you know, I got him. I wish I still had it on my phone machine. Hi, this is George Harrison oh, wow. from London. And will you go on tour? Because I don't like the way Eric Clapton's playing or something. Like that. 
he gets that dark bassy tone. I don't know what he was talking about. And God, I struggled with that. You know, oh my God, you know. But we were doing Into the Great Wide Open, me and Tom and Jeff. Right. And I just couldn't leave that to go off, run off on tour. And so I actually had to say no. That broke my heart. But uh, so, well, I mean, you know, also, also the mic. I mean, did you really want to get in the middle of all that history of George and Eric? I mean, gee, you know, I mean, well, those guys had a lot of a lot of stuff back and forth. If my calendar had been open, I would have been on that plane to play with George Harrison for sure. Yeah. No matter what. But it's just that what it illustrates is that very few offers came. That was one that I could seriously considered. But usually it'd just be some local somebody. Like, no, I'm, I'm busy. You know, I, I was always too busy to do that. Even after you were getting real producing credit on Tom's records, people. Well, Stevie, I did some things with Stevie Nick right. here and there, but not, not a whole lot of, my phone wasn't running off the hook, but people want me to produce them. No. That's shocking to me. Well, I, uh, honestly, you know, maybe I just prefer working on my own songs anyway. It's more fulfilling to me than to try to, you know, make somebody else's career great. What uh, what's your writing routine these? Has it changed? Has that writing routine changed? Because two of the, both those stories are kind of like you just picked up the guitar, and it reminds me of the way everyone talked about Eddie Van Halen, which has just always had the guitar in his hand. It, it was just always happening. So, are, are, do you consciously sit down like, hey, tomorrow I'm going to write songs, or no. are you just always in flow? How does that work for you? I never clock in to write. It just doesn't work that way. But uh, I do have certain hours of the day when I know that I'm. My services are not needed with the family when I'll wander in uh, and try to, you know, and see if something, I never force it, you know, if it's not coming, I just leave the room. But uh, no, it, it, it's a very organic process for me. It has to come to me. Uh, a lot of times it'll, if I'm listening to music that I like, like a Beatles or Stones or, you know, John Lee Hooker or whatever, that will inspire me. I'll hear something. Ooh, what is that? And I'll go figure it out. And I'll go, okay, I, I'm going to write now. because This is turning something on inside of me. But I can't clock in and go, okay, I've got tomorrow from 8 to 10, I'm going to write. Now, and, and do you keep a guitar next to the bed still? There's a guitar everywhere. Everywhere I sit, I can reach over and pick up a guitar. And even, yes, you may want to cut this out. I'm going to be really honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> Heart of the matter Okay, and I'm honestly, you might want to keep this out because it's, but it's so funny. Part of the matter, I got up, I sat on the toilet first thing in the morning. I had yes. a guitar on the wall, and I was half asleep, and I just went. No, the, I, there's no way I'm taking that out of the podcast. That's incredible. All, the songs, the, or the 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 body stuff, all comes out together at the same time. <laughs> that's that's unbelievable, man. So and of course, question, yes, you have to yes. have the instrument nearby. Because any or even driving in a car, sometimes you have to pull the car over. Because you know these things come, and it's a gift. It's it's magic, and it's mysterious. And I, for one, can't just turn the switch on. It turns itself on, and you just have to, you know, obey it. Is there a favorite guitar, like uh, that? I mean, I know the guitars you love, but is there one that you feel like I'll never sell this guitar because I've written these well, songs on it? Probably the main one would be my Fender Broadcaster. Oh yeah, like a Telecaster. Yes, 1951. I had that on the first and second album, and uh, it's irreplaceable. Is that the one that was right before the NoCaster? That was first the Broadcaster, yeah. then the NoCaster, then the sure. Telecaster. I'm not sure the technicalities, but they were they called it the Broadcaster because they were aiming for the radio market, and then TV came out and they changed it to the Telecaster. <laughs> yeah. 
I think I don't want to. I, I think what happened was they they got told they weren't allowed to call it the broadcaster because someone else had right. that. Gretch, Gretch had a drum called the broadcaster. Right, and I think they were banned from using it. So then they had a year with no name, and then like you say, they thought of the name. Yeah, the, I think uh, you're right. I think you're right. The the telecaster. That's so why it was like a, a a no caster. And do you ever? So you never have what people would consider writer's block. Yes, I do. Not very often. Uh, in fact, it's usually the other problem where I've just got to stop writing because it's, it's, it's obsessive and I'll have to force myself to stop. But occasionally um, I'll just go through, you know, uh, a period where I just don't feel it. You know, I just leave the room, you know, but it, when it comes back, I come back in the room. But not too often do I have block. No. And, and do you uh, and do you ever write with anyone else in the room? It seems like all the time it's just you alone. Well, it's always been pretty much me alone. Even Tom and I would rarely sit eyeball to eyeball. Because right. that's kind of, it's kind of intimidating for me to pull that magic out of the air with someone else. It's almost like a private thing between you and God, you know. Yes. But on this, uh, uh, this friend of mine who became a really good friend, Chris Stapleton, I did sit with him yes. at his request. And we, we wrote some songs. One of them is on the uh, uh, 39 great song. Yeah, it's such a good song. And yeah. a couple of other songs are on his record, which I haven't heard it finished yet. But he, he, I guess I helped him with a couple of those and he gave me credit. So we did sit together and I kind of enjoyed it with him because we just got along so well. So, you know, but it's not something I've normally done. It's usually be, I'll put, you know, I'm safe working on my music by myself so I can get it, everything sorted out first. But just, oh, that's super cool that you wrote songs on Chris's record. His new record is so good. Yeah, he's amazing, and he's such a. Do you know which what songs did you write on his I think record? One was uh, "Watch You Burn," "Devil's Gonna Watch You Burn," and another one called "Arkansas," I think. That's oh, that's so and great. While he was here, I had him sing on "Pistol Pack." Yes, no, I know that one, um, and that song's just so kick ass uh, on your record. Um, yeah, he's great. I'm so happy for his uh, his success. You know, that guy was struggling for a long time, right, as a writer and stuff. I, I guess I just wanted to ask these days, what do you do to kind of keep yourself centered? Like, do you journal? Do you meditate? Do you take long walks? Like, how do you how do you sort of like manage your state during something like touring with Fleetwood Mac or about to launch your album? How do you deal with the stress and tension? Well, all of those things. Uh, pretty much every morning I have uh, some bloodhounds and I take them for a walk in the early morning. It clears my head out and they love it. And then... Uh, I have family. I stay home a lot these days, but I have my studio where I can work if I'm uh, so inclined. And that keeps me sane. And then uh, I have family. I have some grandkids that come over, you know, twice a week. I get together with them, you know, with with precautions. And, uh, you know, we watch a lot of Netflix. Yes. (laughs) At night, we have our Netflix hour. And um, I just... You know, I'm just uh, like everybody else. I feel, you know, grateful that I have a nice place to hang out while this stuff is working itself out. But I haven't been anywhere. You know, I mean, occasionally we might go out and pick up food, but... Um, no, of I, course. We all have to protect ourselves. In a, but, yeah, and you're, I have, a, I have a, a mantra sometimes that it was given to me that I sometimes use if I'm really not centered. That calms me down. And a lot of times, yes. mostly music calms me down. I play the guitar. It helps me, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. And And... I guess, lastly, man, um, we can talk about Fleetwood Mac. We can talk about a bunch of stuff another time. But lastly, for now, um, what is it about this record now and this time in your life that you're most looking forward to? And, and 
in your mind, like who's the perfect audience for the Dirty Knobs? Who are you thinking of when when you're when you're making the record? And and how does it feel to 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 have your thoughts be the ones you know your words, your thoughts be the ones that people are going to be singing along to? Well, uh, I hope people sing along to them. I hope people get to hear them. Uh, I'm mostly looking forward to playing live with these songs, and I hope that we get a crowd of. Uh, like-minded people that like the kind of music I like that will relate to the band. I mean, we've had some great uh, results playing around Southern California before everything went bad. We've always, you know, some people are my age, some people are younger. Um, You know, if you like the kind of music I like, I think you'll love this band because it's full of influences from what turned me on when I was young. And I just want to, you know, I just want to keep writing and playing. I love playing in front of an audience big small i don't care i like to the the uh the interchange of energy and i'm really proud of the songs and i want to hear them up loud you know with an audience that's, that's what i'm looking forward to well yeah man i i just want to say that hearing uh hearing songs like anna lee fuck that guy uh pistol pack and mama the uh southern boy i i it is so good to hear uh, you know, a- Anna Lee to me is a song that could have been on any record you've ever worked on, and Don Henley would have had a massive hit with that record, I think. Well, thank and you very much. You know, I'm already singing along to your album, and and uh, I, I really am, Mike. And uh, when you come play New York uh, post pandemic, I'll I'll be there shouting along right in front. So yeah, and so uh, definitely come back and say hi. I, you, I will. You've done a great interview, by the way. Yeah, you've really dug in deep, uh, even to the toilet area, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, no. you've had, you've had some very, uh, you know, when you get into the subject of songwriting, I get kind of mystical because I'm so into it. But you asked a lot of really uh, questions I've never been asked before. It was very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, everybody, Mike Campbell, go to his Instagram. His Instagram is a total treasure. And you get everything about why people have gravitated toward this guy for, for years and years. He's so open and plays these songs and explains how he wrote them and talks about times with Tom. And it's a very special thing. And, and, for all the ills of social media, it's a great use of social media. And everybody, go get Reckless, a band on the new album by Dirty Knobs. Mike Campbell, thanks for being here, everybody. Find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter or on Instagram, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Mike. Be well. Thank you, Brian. Stay safe.